Amid a wild race for the Republican nomination for Missouri's U.S. Senate seat, there's a competition between three major contenders to represent Democrats on the November ballot. One of these competitors is Spencer Toder, a St. Louis native who feels he's charting out the right strategy and articulating the right message to turn the seat blue. Toder joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about his campaign and the big issues he could tackle in the U.S. Senate. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me from Jefferson City, she is St. Louis Public Radio State House and Politics reporter, Sarah Kellogg. And joining us in studio in St. Louis, he is one of many Democrats running for Missouri's U.S. Senate seat. Spencer Toter. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and why you decided to get into this race, which I think combined has like 39, 40 people in it or something like that. It is quite the clown car of calamities on one side and uh, quite a few candidates on the other. Um, Well, I'm born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, went to Washington University in St. Louis and got my undergrad and my MBA there and have worked in St. Louis my entire life. I'm growing a family here. My wife and uh, my son Avery are uh, residents of St. Louis County, and we're really proud of what we've done and accomplished to date, most most notably in economic development in St. Louis. Uh, I was one of the people who was responsible for the growth of the Cortex development. Um, I had the exclusive leasing rights to the 4240 building Cortex One and helped recruit over 100 companies into the region. Uh, including companies like Square, that are that is one of our larger uh, hiring companies at, at this current time. Uh, not only do I live in St. Louis, but my family has a farm out in Franklin County. And so what I found is that no matter where I go across the state, I'm able to relate with people of different backgrounds. And it turns out that we all have similar problems. We have challenges with a- access to education, access to health, quality health care, and people are ready for someone to take an action. And so when I saw that there wasn't a candidate in the race who was willing to do the hard work to get in front of people and make people's lives better as a focus of a campaign rather than fundraising or relying on advertising, I decided that it was the right time. And I spoke with my wife and my family. And after quite a bit of discussion, we determined that the best thing we could do to try to improve the quality of life for Missourians was for me to become the next U.S. Senator. What sets you apart from the other major Democratic candidates running for this post? So my campaign is focused on action. Um, Our internal motto is doing well by doing good. And so everything that we focus on as a campaign is about making the lives of Missourians better now rather than waiting until I'm in the U.S. Senate. When we started this campaign, we raised over $50,000 for Afghan refugees and two, two storage containers full of supplies that we donated to the International Institute. We turned around the following uh, month and we held a rally for Kevin Strickland to call for his release in Kansas City, bringing in the National Organization for Exonerees to speak on his behalf at, at his hearing. 
we've continued that work helping hundreds of people get the access to the child tax credit that didn't know that they qualified. And I'm really proud that as of today, we've helped over 10,000 Missourians access Medicaid through Medicaid expansion that didn't previously know that they qualified. You're running against one candidate, Trudy Bush Valentine, who can self-fund and another Lucas Coons who has outraised most Republican candidates. How do you see yourself gaining traction against them? So if money was the only thing that mattered in politics, we'd be talking to President Bloomberg and Amy McGrath as our senator from Kentucky. And it's important that we recognize that the most important thing is, can you be, are you electable and can you find a way to relate to voters and to earn their trust? So everything that I focus on is earning trust. And that's why we haven't spent that much time holding fundraisers or spent much money on Facebook advertising, asking people in California or New York for donations, which is a large portion of where most of that money is coming from. We've spent our time making the lives of Missourians better. And I think that in the end, that's what Missourians are going to recognize because they're ready for someone. We are ready for someone to actually step up and do the work. As a follow-up question, you have put some of your own money into this race, correct? I have. I've put the vast majority of my savings into this race. We asked this to Senator Schatz. Like, what do you think the advantages of of that are, and what do you think the disadvantages are of self-funding? So the disadvantage is you're taking less you're taken less seriously by the media. Um, we have very few metrics that we measure people who are running for office by, and so when you look at fundraising numbers, that is one way in which people measure success. What it's been a, a, what it's what it's done for me though is it's allowed me to focus on what's important, which is the lives of Missourians. It's allowed me to focus on connecting one-on-one and answering questions all day long from people who email me online and having sessions with in town halls where I can connect to actual everyday Missourians and not focus on high net worth individuals or people out of state to, to fund in the state. There are only 5,000 political donors in the state in a non-presidential year. That's only 5,000 voters. And it's really important that we don't spend all of our time just speaking to those 5,000 people. We need to be speaking to everyone in the state because everyone deserves to have their voice heard. And that's really the focus of my campaign is platforming other people and, and making sure that we're taking the advice of experts in our policy so we can raise and elevate their voices because everyone deserves to be heard. Everyone's sick of, of yelling at a TV screen and throwing their phone against the wall and feeling like nothing is changing. And I'm about change. Democrats have had a hard time piecing together the geographic coalition to win statewide races in Missouri. Why are you confident that you can do it? Well, there's a couple things there. One is we're, we're taking on a massive effort to register new voters. And that's talked about quite often. But I think the way we're able to use technology to tap into people who have never voted before or people in the 18 to 21 year old demographic is different than what anyone else has been able to do in the past. Um, we, we have direct contact with over 300,000 young adults ages 18 through 21 right now. And while people normally say those folks don't come out to vote, it's because we don't usually talk to them. And so Students for Spencer is a group that started this week, and it's got over 150 members across the state right now uh, of young adults that are passionate about the causes that I support and the fact that I take action in the community. And in the African-American community, I've spent a substantial amount of time making sure that I'm doing outreach because the main thing that I hear over and over when I go into communities is politicians show up a week before the election and they want our vote and they never do anything to help us. But when I'm getting people on Medicaid and when I'm helping people get the child tax credit and when I'm doing work in the community and and really living my values, that resonates with people. And I think it's going to make a big difference uh, when it comes to earning their votes and their trust. So we're going to switch topics and start getting to these policy questions. So we're going to start with the policy that is the current Russian invasion of Ukraine. If you were in the U.S. Senate, would you continue to support President Biden's efforts to send Ukraine uh, military and humanitarian assistance? 
Absolutely, one hundred percent. I think that protection of democracy as a whole is a is a national security issue, and Russia has been at war with America for ten years, but we haven't seen it in the same way because it's been largely technological and digital. And it's incredibly important that not only do we have politicians and leaders in office who understand that level of technology, which I can promise you I do, but that we're also making sure that our allies have the resources necessary. And so when, what Ukraine is doing on the ground there is so important to the future of our country. When you see the impact that Vladimir Putin and Russia have had on, on America, we're currently engaged in that battle, whether we like it or not. And so it's incredibly important that our allies have resources and that we're constantly protecting democracy, which, for my opinion, has always been an American ideal. And it is discouraging when people refer to it as nation building when it's really defending democracy. Would you have voted for the $40 billion aid package that President Biden recently signed into law? Yes. Why do you, why would you have yeah. done that? <laughs> uh, it, I mean, right now, there's a lot of discussion about this. And, and for starters, I think it's really important that we frame the conversation appropriately. There's enough money to do all of these things. And so giving $40 billion to Ukraine to help support their growth and development and their defense isn't nation building. But we can be nation building here at the same time because that money exists. We just don't tax the wealthy enough. People making over $400,000 should have their taxes increased, and families making under $400,000 should be paying less in taxes. If we did that and we, we held true to our values and we funded the things that are important, like education and health care, and, and we took care of criminal justice reform, you would not hear the same complaints about sending aid to foreign countries that need our assistance. But they are our allies, and these are humans. I mean, at the end of the day, we've gotten to the point where politicians and politics have dehumanized so many people. And I just can't imagine being in Ukraine right now and being afraid and what it feels like to not know if your, your life is going to be taken. And to think that your allies who have promised you that their support and security would, would back out or not hold true to that promise is very, very detrimental to not only our national image, but it's important to making sure that our allies trust us in the future. And so I, I fully believe that we should be sticking tight with them while also investing in America at home. What do you make of uh, the argument that the focus of Ukraine is detracting from domestic issues? We need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. There are so many issues plaguing this country right now. Uh, the rise of extremism being amongst the, the most important and most impactful, which we're going to be talking about during the January 6th committee hearings. Um, the, the complete polarization and division of our society brought on by the suppression of so many folks who were looking for answers and they were given answers that led to... Uh, hating people from our own country and hating people who are who are immigrating to our country, all the way to things like Roe v. Wade being overturned, which we're pretty sure is going to happen in the coming days. And and there are people who are really afraid right now. And so if we can't take on responsibility of managing issues like that, as well as the epidemic of gun violence and, and anything else that's happening in the country, then we don't deserve to lead. And it's absolutely important that we can focus on all of these issues at once. And you know, it all kind of comes back to the same thing. If we had uh, if we had a government that was focused on real, if we had a government that was focused on problem solving real issues and not focused on po political rhetoric, we would actually be making change. And it's the political rhetoric and the fighting and the, the 
pompous grandstanding that is really hurting our society. And you see it online constantly because people are going for engagement and clicks and retweets and likes instead of focusing on issues that matter and making an impact in lives. And ultimately, Americans just want to see change. They want to be safer. They want to be more secure. They want to have more freedom and more prosperity. And every day that we spend not protecting our rights and freedoms in that regard and helping with our economic security is disadvantaged is a huge disadvantage to Americans, and it is absolutely important that we take care of everyone in this country. Congresswoman Cori Bush has been skeptic of some of the sanctions related to Ukraine. She noted that a Russian oil ban would indirectly help Saudi Arabia, which has a highly questionable human rights record. What do you make of that? So I think the most important thing we can do to get oil costs under control is to start off by recognizing that this is an international problem. This isn't something that is American-made and something that Joe Biden is doing or has necessarily direct control over at all times, or else you wouldn't see higher costs of gasoline in countries like Germany and Norway and Sweden. So it's important that we start off by communicating the actual issues here. And what's really happening is oil companies are profiteering at the expense of a war. They are they're claiming that they need to change their supply uh, output, and it's impacting our ability to succeed. At the same time, we've now taken all of the people who were working from home, and we've put them back in their offices where they're commuting all day and every day. And so one of the amazing things that we can do as a society that both benefits in taking care of some of the issues we're facing with the pandemic and the, the continuous growth of you know, everyone I know getting COVID in the last month is ask people to work from home again. Ask people to sacrifice a little bit because the the lack of demand when it comes to to using gasoline will actually lower the cost of gas. So there are plenty of things we can do, but I don't think that that sanctions are the are the thing that that we'll see the most benefit from. I think it really is economic incentives. How can people work from home if their job requires them to work somewhere? Like if they work at a fast food restaurant or they work in the service industry? No, absolutely, and and there are essential workers who should absolutely be in in their locations of 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 work, but they can be masked and we can continue to mask as a society. Because honestly, I I come from a household where I have a two-year-old son who can't be vaccinated and a wife who's immunocompromised. And so we spend every day in fear that me being out on the campaign trail is going to bring this back. But but there are things we can do to mitigate that. Uh, I want to touch base on the gas price issue. Um, If you... I'm sure that when we bring more Republican candidates on the show, they're going to make the argument that President Biden's environmental policies are fueling the rise of gas prices. And I'm sure that you disagree with that. So I want you to respond to that argumentation that I'm sure is going to become widespread both in the primary and the general election. So first and foremost, we need to be investing in renewable energy. And if we'd been doing it for the last 20 years, we wouldn't be in this predicament. You don't have increase of, of cost of energy when when there's a war because the sun just stops shining or the wind stops blowing. And so there are things that we should have been doing for years. I don't think you can directly blame this on Joe Biden. And honestly, there are so many things in the Build Back Better plan that would have benefited uh, lowering these costs. And the best thing that we can do actually to deal with inflation, which is the the key driver of this, is is to make sure that we're paying people more and that we're paying fair wages. Because what's happening is the wealthy are taking more home with them. and the top 10% spends 40% of the of the money that's going into uh, into goods and services. And so if we tax the super wealthy, we'll bring down some of that demand, which will allow us to free up the markets in a way that brings inflation down, while at the same time making sure that people have working wages. Because 
it's hard to to pay at the pump. I get it. I, I drive across this state. I'm putting a thousand miles on my car every single week, and it hurts me when I when I plug in the the tank to get filled up. But I know that if we invest in long term renewables, if we take care of our planet, if we do all these things, we do have a great opportunity to make change. Speaking of the Build Back Better package, it it died after Senator Joe Manchin refused to support it because, in his view, it would have increased inflation. Do you agree? And if not, why do you think that increased governmental spending wouldn't have effect on inflation? So there are elements of spending that will always lead to increase uh fluidity of cash and capital. And so to some extent, it would lead to additional increasing costs. However, if we increase what we're paying people at the same time, they won't go in need. And I think that that's the really important thing, is that when we look at things in a vacuum and we try to simplify things into bumper sticker language or simplify them into ways that don't benefit our economic understanding, we do ourselves a disservice. And so the things that are important in that bill will actually decrease the cost of many goods. Because if you think about things like daycare and childcare that currently aren't being covered by our government effectively, that are covered in the Build Back Better plan, that will allow countless people to go back to work who wouldn't have to be staying home taking care of their children. When you have a bigger workforce, the cost of goods comes down. And that's what's really important there is we need to bring the cost of goods down to a more affordable level. Inflation is seen widely as a big issue among voters this election cycle. What would you do as a senator to address it? So the most important thing that we can do is realize that we have extremists in our state house, in our house, in our Senate. The extremists in our house, in our Senate, have stopped us from filling seats at the Fed. And the Fed is our best opportunity to combat inflation. They can they can adjust interest rates, they can change monetary policy, and they can do things that are important. So when you think about the fact that we held a hearing to nominate people to the Fed and not a single Republican uh, politician showed up, you recognize how much of a disservice we're doing to our country. If we're going to actually address inflation, again, I do think that investing in childcare is a great way to do that. If we have more workers working, the cost of of production comes down and our ability to meet demand goes up. And so all of a sudden, we've got people who are working in manufacturing facilities who previously had to stay home with a child, or we've got other we've got people going into hospitals so we don't have to spend as much on on healthcare costs because all of a sudden we have the supply of nurses and doctors who can who can be in, at, at the hospital. So I think those are really important ways in which we can curb inflation. But I think the most important thing we can do is to communicate to people around this country and around this state that inflation isn't a uniquely American problem and it's not a uniquely Missouri problem. This is a worldwide problem brought on by the fact that we had a pandemic and then we infused $1.4 trillion into an economy to try to make sure that we didn't go into the largest recession of our lives. And, and it really was important. So now we have to do everything we can to curb it, but understand why. We'll be right back after this quick break with Democratic Senate hopeful Spencer Toder. And we're back on Politically Speaking with Spencer Toder. He is running for the United States Senate as a Democrat. I want to talk about abortion because we're recording this on Tuesday, June 7th. It's very possible by the time this is posted that the Supreme Court will have made their decision about whether states like Missouri can ban abortion under most circumstances. If the Supreme Court does what the draft that was leaked to Politico says, which is basically overturn Roe versus Wade, what would you do as a U.S. senator to counteract that? So the sole reason that I'm running for office is to counteract Senators Manchin and Cinema so that we can abolish the filibuster and make the change that we deserve and need. 
we, when we have a 60 vote threshold to pass in the S- Senate, there is no chance that we have to make any change in this country. So when I am elected senator, I will vote to abolish the filibuster and we will codify Roe into law. And for what it's worth, that is something that is incredibly popular across this country. Only 8% of Americans think that abortion should be outlawed in all cases, and over 55% think that it should be codified into law. And so what we have right now is an extremist minority that is controlling us, that is taking away our our privileges and our freedoms and our rights. And it's really, really important that we always frame this in terms of privacy, because the government has no business knowing what's going on in our homes. And when abortion is outlawed, you need to recognize that it, it sets the precedent that they're going to be able to outlaw other things that we currently hold private, like our sexual orientation and what, who we marry. And th- things of that nature are of the utmost importance to the constituents of this state. And I promise that when I am elected, I will go up there and I will proudly cast a vote to abolish the filibuster and codify Roe. Missouri is a state that has a trigger law, meaning if Roe versus Wade is overturned, abortion would be illegal in the state. In this case, what should the response be? Does this need to be a law that's counteracted by further state government action? Or do you believe at this point the only further action that can be taken is through the federal government? So I'm running for U.S. Senate because I believe that this has to be done at the federal level. It is absolutely essential that we don't allow a gerrymandered, broken political system that Republican politicians have managed to rig to take away our rights as people of this state. You should not have to go across the border of a state line in order to receive health care. You should not feel like you are disenfranchised because you are a resident in our state and not a resident in another state. And one thing that I really want to harp on here, because the business community has not gotten into this space nearly enough, is if you think we're going to be able to employ the best and brightest people when we don't allow people to have human rights in our state and they don't have the medical freedom to choose their own medical care, boy, do do you, you have something coming to you. The, the, you look at what happened when trans rights were banned in North Carolina, and it cost billions of dollars over a 12-year period. I think the number is $8 billion in economic loss. Now, think about what will happen to Missouri when all of a sudden no one of, of child-rearing age wants to live here because they're worried that if they're raped, they're going to have to carry their rapist child, or if they have an unwanted pregnancy, that they'll have to carry it to full term. And by the way, some of these laws they're trying to pass will make it illegal to cross borders and come back if you've received an abortion and make anyone who's been involved in the process a felon. That's not American, and that's not in line with our values, and it's just another example of the extremism that has taken over our society. Are there any restrictions on abortion that you would support? No. Uh, I, the, the right to choose is the right to choose. And it, as, a, as a man, it is not my role to tell someone what they, what they can or can't do. And it really is about privacy to me. You mentioned, like, you think that the laws in Missouri passed because of gerrymandering. But my experience of covering the state for 16 years is there's a lot of voters out there that may agree with everything that you're saying right now, except this issue of abortion, and they will not vote for you because you're in support of abortion rights. How do you navigate through that reality? And so I, I hope in general that people recognize that we can't just be one issue voters anymore. There's so many things that are attacking our country right now, starting with extremism and white nationalism, that if we don't combat that, we're going to have long term problems. And when I talk about gerrymandering and what that means, it means that we're drawing less competitive districts and less competitive districts mean that we're drawing them in ways that we have more extreme personalities coming out of them. If we get to a point where we get rid of gerrymandering, the rhetoric is going to pipe down because people will have to be more competitive in a primary. Right now, if you win a primary, 
in in a state where you think that there's a guarantee that your party is going to win, that, then you win. And and we and when ten percent of the people who show up in a primary to vote are determining who we choose between, we never have a chance of winning. So I think that where I come from, which is a family that has been you know, has had people vote for Republicans and vote Democrats in the past. I think what we're all united around is that this movement towards white nationalism and extremism has to end. And my current belief and my belief my entire life has been that the right to choose is the right to choose. It is really important, though, that when people talk about abortion, they recognize that the number of abortions that are taking place in the third trimester is minuscule. And it's always, always when a woman's life is in danger. And so we have these images that that Republican politicians like to paint of people tearing limbs off of children, and that isn't accurate, and it's really detrimental to the conversation. So it's important that we take a step back and recognize that this is about human life, and no one is going out excited to to go and and make a really challenging decision that impacts them and their family and their lives long term, but it is a personal decision. So let's move on to guns and gun rights. What restrictions on firearms would you support if you're elected to the U.S. Senate? Great question, and it couldn't be more topical at this you know terrible time in our society. I am. When I started running for office, one of the first things that I did is I linked up with Moms Demand Action, and I'm proud today to be to be a Moms Demand Action demand a seat candidate of distinction of the three top candidates in this race. I'm the only one who has pursued that distinction and received it, and. In that process, I've become far more educated about guns and about our gun rights. And it's important to recognize that when the Second Amendment was written, it didn't apply to assault rifles, it didn't apply to weapons of war, and it applied to a well-regulated militia, which is not the people who have weapons right now. We've made it incredibly easy for people to get access to military-grade weapons, and they're using it to, to literally kill our children. So we need to decide what our values are. Are our values that people should be able to have unfettered access to assault rifles or that our children should be protected in schools. And to me, that answer is easy. So I, I believe that we should have a full uh, a full ban on assault rifles and high capacity magazines and do an assault rifle buyback. I think that we need to pass other common sense gun reforms, like making sure that we have red flag laws in case someone's putting other people in danger, that we have a waiting period that's guaranteed. Because right now, the Charleston loophole says that after three days, if you haven't gotten through your waiting period, you can still get your gun. And you see what happens is 18-year-olds are buying guns and going to shoot up schools the same day. We, we can protect against that, and we, we know how. And we also know that the more guns on the street, the cheaper it is for people to buy guns secondhand. And so we need to limit the, the, the impact of that by making sure only people, that the only people who have access to guns are people who have taken classes to make sure that they're safely handling those guns and that they're keeping them in a safe storage. And that parlays into my next question. Do you think that bans on certain types of weapons would be difficult, if not impossible, to enforce when there are so many of them in circulation right now? It's definitely challenging. Um, for starters, this is going to be a challenge no matter what. And so I think there are risks involved. But I think if you look at what's happening after these mass shootings is gun sales are going through the roof. And so something as simple as after a a murder, after a mass murder, we have a 14-day ban on assault rifles. Something that simple would, would have a prolonged effort. But what's really important is that we do make every effort possible because our children's lives and the, our safety and security is, is worthwhile. For those who advocate for greater restrictions on firearms but are seeing you know, continued mass shootings without action from legislators, do you see any pathway for any federal legislation that implements gun control? And if so, what would that legislation be and what would have to change within the Senate itself for that to happen? I think we'll likely see a change on 
assault rifles, to be honest. I think that that is somewhere where we can find common ground. It's somewhere where I think Senators Manchin and Sinema can get on board and try to help influence this and potentially make sure that 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 action can't be filibustered. When you look at where we stand currently, though, it is an incredibly challenging time. And the best thing that we can do is elect politicians who are going to do that going forward. Um, if, if you look at, at history, we had an assault rifle ban from 1994 to 2004, but it, it wore off. And guess what happened during that time frame? Ma- mass shootings went down by 70 percent. Um, but we have to also realize that this isn't just a mass shooting issue. This is a gun safety issue in, in our rural portions of the state. We have people using guns for suicide at, at a clip that's never been this high. We have young people. The, the highest cause of death for young people right now in, in rural Missouri is death by gun, and it's self-inflicted often. So this isn't just a homicide issue. This isn't just a city's issue. This isn't just a red state, blue state issue. This is an American issue, and we need to take leadership on it. What do you think of Republicans who are calling for a focus on mental health? And, and do you think that banning people with certain mental health care diagnoses are disabilities would be a 14th Amendment equal protection violation. So whether or not it's a 14th Amendment violation is for legal minds greater than mine. But as far as whether or not this is a mental health issue or not, I follow the research. And the research is that it is not. Less than one third of gun violence takes place from from people who have who are diagnosed with mental illness, either before or after the shooting. And what we're seeing is this is predominantly white men who are who are committing these shootings uh, in in the mass shootings world. And other countries have white men, too, but they aren't committing mass murder. And so this isn't specifically a mental health issue. And not only that, we do a huge disadvantage to our to people in our country who are struggling with mental health, which is a real issue that needs to be addressed. And by stigmatizing them further, we make it less likely that they're going to go and get the help that they need. And that is a, a health care issue. So I'm just I'm reading between the lines here. You would not be in support of just a wholesale ban on people being able to have or buy guns based off a specific mental health diagnosis. If someone is a risk to themselves or others, we need to make sure that they can't access guns. If, if we have a, a verifiable documentation that someone is going to be able to put someone at risk and they have docu- that is documented evidence, then no, they should not be able to get guns. And that is widely supported across this country. On our last topic, I want to talk about race, which I think is probably the most difficult issue for policymakers to deal with. But I think it's also the most important. What would you do as a senator to bridge divides between government and black people? Boy, I mean, first of all, we need to be electing a lot more black people. Um, I mean, if you look at the makeup of our government, it does not look like the makeup of our country. And so one of the things that I am passionate about is voting rights. And if you look at what's happening in this country in regards to voting rights, it's making it it's going to make it less and less likely for black people to be able to be elected. And so when we get to to the Senate and when we get there and we check the box to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the For the People Act, we're going to be able to make it more likely that that black people can be elected and that they have their voice heard and that they have full representation. That's something I'm deeply committed to. I've been involved in criminal justice reform through through the duration of my campaign, and it's something that I've grown incredibly passionate about because I've seen the discrimination firsthand that black people in this state and this country are facing, whether it's in the healthcare industry where maternal uh, mortality rates are five times that of white women for black women, whether it's in incarceration where black men are serving longer service longer sentences than white uh, than white men and white people and the state and the, and at times where they are still in prison for using things like marijuana, which should be legalized and which you can go down the street and buy with a $75 license or go across the border and, and you know buy freely. 
we shouldn't be incarcerating black people at such a high rate. And if you look at the number of black people who can't vote currently because of arrest records, it's really unfair. And we need to make sure that everyone has agency and the ability to have their voices heard. And that means that everyone should have the ability to vote. What concrete steps do you think the federal government could pursue to help towards racial equity? So there are a lot of problems with racial inequality. I think one of the things that we see in our state, and I'll focus on our state because I do think that it comes back here in the end, is our education system is completely broken. Now, this affects people in both the cities as well as in rural Missouri. In rural Missouri, 25% of, uh, in our state, 25% of students go to school four days per week. And we are doing a huge disservice to those students and to their families. In the city of St. Louis, we have schools closing down year after year as we funnel money into charter schools and as we try to come up with new and creative ways to educate people. But at the end of the day, the fact that we're funding education based on real estate taxes and scratchers lottery tickets is a huge disservice. And it isn't equitable because you realize that when the government when the government disinvests in communities like they have in North City, when the government disinvests in communities like they have in rural Missouri, property tax values go down, property values go down, and all of a sudden there's less money to go to our schools. And at a time where our state is 49th in funding of state of, of funding and education statewide, we need to look at what this could look like federally. So I believe that we need to be federally funding education and adjusting with a, with a cost of living index to make sure that every student in this country, every child in this country accesses education. And I think that that's one amazing way that we could have an impact. Now, you kind of answered this question already, but I'll just kind of restate it to dig a little bit deeper. Do you think that really targeting racial inequities is a federal government responsibility, or do you think it needs to be done at a state and a local level? And if so, why? If not, why not? So I think it's both. I mean, I don't think you can have one without the other. I mean, if you look at the disparities that are going on, not only in race, but in regards to the LGBTQ community, where we haven't passed the Equality Act yet, um, there are so many ways in which we are being discriminated against by extremists that it's important that we use any resource, both at the federal and at the local level. One of the things that I talk about often is what happened when interest rates went down. And this is a huge problem because one of the untold treasures that may be a, a bug and it may be a feature is that people who owned their homes had their property values go through the roof and then they refinanced. And a lot of the money that we're seeing in the economy now is from the refinancing of these homes. And people were able to lock in long-term low interest rates. So someone who had a 5% interest rate and brought it down to a 2% interest rate is now potentially saving a thousand plus dollars a month. White people own homes at a rate of about 72%, and black people own homes at a rate of about 41%. So while Americans got $1,400 in stimulus funds, white folks who owned their homes got 30 years of benefit and more money up front in their pocket that they could invest during a, a, a boom in our economy. Whereas black folks were stuck in a position where they are ending up in a renter's prison because one in seven offers on homes right now in Missouri uh, in, in working class homes are being sold to private equity firms. And so they're going to model in increased rates of rent every single year because that's how they make their money. And we need to be addressing these large scale problems, not with bumper sticker language and simple solutions, but in recognizing that there is systemic inequality built into our policies. And that has to be addressed at both the local and the state and the federal level. 
Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Uh, Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can follow all of our stories at stlpr.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Sarah, how can people follow you on Twitter? They can follow me at Sarah K. Kellogg. That's two L's, two G's. And how could people find out more about your campaign, either through Google Chrome or any social media outlet? Absolutely. You can find me at spencertoder.com. That's S-P-E-N-C-E-R-T-O-D-E-R.com. On Twitter, I'm at Spencer Toder. I'm Spencer Toder for Senate on Facebook. I've got a TikTok account and I'm on Instagram. So you can do it. You can find me in any of those places. If you click on the little floating head in the corner of my website, you can uh, have start a conversation with me. And every day I respond to the questions with a video response to anyone who asks them. Well, thank you very much. And until next time, so long.